0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest today is Julian Spencer Churchill. He is, quite frankly, the reason I remained in the political science program at Concordia University. His strategic studies courses were absolutely mesmerizing, and I couldn't think of anyone better to explain what is happening on the ground in Ukraine. In addition to being an incredible university professor, Julian is an author, the chairperson of the Canadian Centre for Strategic Studies, and has been a key advisor to the Canadian government and intelligence services on Pakistan. His principal research focus is on arms racing and its impact on war causation, the sharing of nuclear weapons, naval strategy, and military doctrine and planning. His field research has included work at the U.S. Pentagon and State Department, Egypt, Indonesia, Bangladesh, India, and most frequently, Pakistan. I hope you enjoy this conversation. thank you so much uh for coming on the program i really appreciate it. it's been uh it's been obviously forever um it's a big yeah,
1: very question, long time george yeah the, you thank you
0: know, you. The, you know the big question i have because it's been almost 20 years since i've graduated but somehow you look younger so someone needs to explain <laughs> that <laughs> someone needs to explain how that works
1: <laughs> yeah my, my regimen is walking on the uh the waterfront in the west island uh, there you go yeah, yeah that's it <laughs>
0: Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for coming. How are you? How have you been? It's, it's been a long time.
1: Yeah, um, it, it's, uh, I'm fine, George. I, I hate to say it, but um, uh, I weren't dormant for a long time because there wasn't much to study in terms of international security. Everything was potentialities. And so uh, in some ways, uh, the, sort of the, the tragedy is that this conflict uh, woke me and my students up. Um, and we started to look for theories, and look for explanations to try to figure out, you know, what the heck is going on. Um, we I mean, uh, we we generally predicted what was going to happen. And we, we published things before um, that suggested it was going to happen. And we, we were fairly confident. But, uh, you know, even even uh, uh, just but every analyst was taken for a spin on a whole bunch of different points. So it's a surprise um, on, on many levels also
0: yeah, before we get to that, because I want to speak to you specifically about what's happening in Ukraine. I think everyone is pretty much stuck to their TV screens these days wondering what the hell is going on. Uh, nobody ever really expected a, a major power invading Europe again after you know that whole history that we've all been taught. Um, but before that, just you know a little comical thing, I, I, I need to tell you uh, something that very few people know this. And my whole thing through uh, Concordia, Uh, and later on the career, it was all by chance. And the reason I say this, you're probably responsible for that. When I got into university, I, and I assume a lot of students uh, are in the same boat, had no clue what I wanted to do. Uh, I I applied to a program that I was refused in. So the second option was political science. So my idea was, okay, I'll go in a year and then I'll just switch. And then it happened that I think the first semester or the second semester, among the first classes I took was yours, one of yours. And I was mesmerized. I, I was like, what the hell is this? I didn't know what political science was. I didn't know what you guys studied. I didn't know what you taught. Like, I didn't know what it was. And when I it was your course and I'm like, holy shit, I'm following this guy. I don't know, you know, I don't know where he's going. It was you and Professor Nicolini. I remember you were among the classes. that, And I'm like, I'll just follow these guys. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'll follow Needless to say, I arrived almost a year before the end of uh, before graduating, and I realized that I had been taking classes that I shouldn't have been, because there's you know certain categories, you have to take a certain number from each category. I had no clue what I was doing. I was just following you and Professor Nicoleni, whatever class you gave, let me just follow these guys, they're interesting. And I realized at the end that I was missing so many courses to graduate. (laughs) So I appreciate that. Uh, And that pretty much paved the way to everything that I've been through. But um, yeah.
1: And, And you went to politics after that. You went to, uh, you said you went to Greece and...
0: uh... I went to work in Greece. Uh, I stayed
1: there for about eight or nine months. For the NATO Association.
0: Yeah, it's a NATO-based organization and uh, very, very interesting, uh, eye-opening experience. Obviously, you're working abroad. It's Europe, um, different challenges, different way of life, and it was a great experience. And then uh, right when I was thinking of, you know, staying there in 2007, there were provincial elections in Quebec and a friend of mine had uh, happened to win. And uh, that opened up the door for me. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, 11 years later, there I was. I I had a whole career uh, in the back rooms, in the backstage of politics all the way up until 2018. So great, great experience. Um, Worked with a lot of interesting people. Got to meet so many uh, wonderful people doing interesting, beautiful things, which pretty much led to the creation of this podcast. So it's funny how things are all kind of uh, attached one to another. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, Just wanted to slip that in because somewhere indirectly, you had a seed that you planted there. So
1: uh, (laughs) I'm happy you picked that up. Um, If if I could tell you the seed that uh, picked me up, I learned how to teach from the uh, Canadian Army. As crazy as that sounds. Yeah. Those guys were the best teachers I ever came across. They were, uh, you know, you're going to think this is very strange, but they were the kindest Um, most helpful, most empathetic teachers I ever came across. And not only, you know, theory, but uh, uh, mechanical stuff. Because some people that are good at books, they're not necessarily good at disassembling a machine gun or whatever. Yeah. And uh, they were patient for that. So those are what I brought into uh, the classroom. Uh, Those guys had super high standards. So, uh, you know, there's a thing about professors, which is they they do a lot of research, (laughs) not necessarily people, people, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, armies definitely people, people, right? Yeah. Um, especially if you know, you, you, there are some places where you can go where things are not going very well. But I was very lucky to be in a place uh, with with uh, uh, people that were good with people and people that were good with struggling in nature. You know, uh, whether it's cold or hot, uh, and then sharing that knowledge. And also, uh, you have that sort of the the, the, in the in the army, you have sort of an age range where as you go up, there's always going to be someone ten years older than you telling you. Uh, what they did so that the mentoring system is very efficient. So that's what you benefited from. Uh, uh, Basically the, uh, the the French Canadian military uh, forest survival sort of cadre. (laughs) Um, And they gave it to me and I passed it on.
0: Very uh, uh, very, much appreciated. Uh, Let's get on with the topic, uh, Julian. Um, And I don't want to talk about the introductory stuff. I think everybody knows pretty much what's happening and why it happened. The reason why I wanted you to come on is so we can discuss really on the ground what's happening. You're an expert on strategic studies. This is what you teach. Um, uh, And I want to know because there's so many questions that people are wondering now. For example, how is it that this war has lasted this long? Are you at all surprised? Um, I remember reports at the very beginning uh, of this uh, of this conflict uh, to the effect that, you know, there was word that came from high up in Russia that Ukrainians wanted to be, quote, liberated by the Russians. And uh, obviously, that's not what they witnessed on the ground. Um how is it that we're one month in and people are still wondering how has Russia not walked all over the Ukraine?
1: Yeah, so we, uh, we, were, we ran a war game um, uh, before and shortly after the war. And the, the war games that we run are Cold War era war games that basically were modeling the Soviet Union. So when I was in the army, we had to memorize organizations of 50,000 people and all the different parts, the armored, the artillery, the mechanized infantry, the the engineers, um, the reconnaissance element, the helicopters sort of uh, and how they work together. So we used that uh, as our guide. And so we we pulled out a giant map with hexagons on it, eight kilometers to the hex. It had all at the time we only had um, uh, eastern Ukraine. So basically from Kiev all the way down to uh, Crimea and all the way to Rostov on the Don, which is just just past the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk inside uh, Russia proper. And we made a bunch of pieces. I mean, this is very simple RAND Corporation, 1950 stuff. And the way that we evaluated it was looking at the equipment they had. And we estimated the Russians would be about 25 percent stronger. We ran this thing. And in about a week, we captured uh, a car key. We got pretty deep into kiev we captured Mariupol. we captured nikolaev so basically what you see today we we were able to do in a week and then when the war happened now now uh uh, uh i should qualify it we did have some questions we knew looking at uh kharki like the old the old kharkov that either the russians were going to get in or they were not going to get it one of two things was going to happen and the model we had for that was basically beirut 1982 and we weren't sure uh, um, uh, essentially, what was happening to uh, Ukrainian identity. So, um I did have a co-author, uh, who's a former student um who gave us insight into that and we published the the findings. We basically want to find out what do Ukrainians think. and and so, um originally, um, there was an estimate about eight, eight of the forty-five million were uh, Russophones that were pro-Russian or Russians. In other words, people that Ukrainians that grew up in the education system learn how to speak Russian, and so were involved with the Russian um, uh, 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 community, and so they were sympathetic to the Russian side of things. And it should be qualified. There's a lot of movement between uh, Ukraine and Russia. It's like Manitoba and Alberta. Mm-hmm. They're they're basically fraternal. But in the case of Russia and Ukraine, they've protected each other for a thousand years. I mean, Ukraine provided the Cossacks, that allowed the Russians to take over uh, Siberia. It was the Russians that, that helped the Ukrainians fight off the Turks um, in the Sea of Azov. And so these are two codependent, geographically different regions that go back, you know, a thousand years, if not more than a thousand years, to the to the Rurikins. So, um, uh we, you know, the question was for us: How is this new identity, uh, the sort of the nation that was being created, uh, how strong was it going to be? How resilient? So, we figured that uh, after Donetsk and Luhansk split off in uh, 2014, we figured that uh, those Russophones and those Russians that wanted to be uh, with Russia would have gone there, and that what was left. Uh, were uh, Russians who were not sympathetic to um, uh, Putin. And if you look at the uh, political parties um, of after 2014, you'll see that uh, many of the issues were no longer divided on identity politics. They were, they were divided on other issues. And so that told us that the Ukrainians were starting to coalesce. So um, that's a huge factor because uh, in all the models that, you can use to measure combat probably the most accessible one is one by a guy called trevor dupuy he was a world war ii colonel of the artillery uh post-war until 1995 he came up with a series of mathematical models Uh, he was a subcontractor for the pentagon and did analysis he basically had a huge database of every small engagement we're talking like a battalion level like 500 soldiers against 500 uh from napoleon to now napoleon to now so it's a huge database and You know, the different variables matter at different times. I mean, sometimes weather matters. Sometimes not having enough food matters. Sometimes the weaponry matters. But on average, the single most important variable is is, uh, human capital. How motivated, how educated, how well led, what is the morale? So you could have an army with super advanced equipment. And if their morale is low, they'll get destroyed every single time. Um, And, you know, it's very hard to predict, you know, what the skill set is that you require. Uh, you know, in, in the Arab-Israeli dispute, a frequent uh, complaint is that the Americans give Israel top-notch equipment, and that's why the Israelis win, and that's not strictly true. The Israelis uh, had this one particular skill in 73 where they had pickup drivers. I had this student, and his father was a, a uh, had a pickup truck during the war, and he would drive around at night after the battle and pick up junk and drive it back to be repaired, all sorts of junk. And they would work on it, And and so the Israelis accumulated a large pile of Russian equipment that they then use better than uh, their adversaries. So in the case of Ukraine, we thought either the Russians were gonna drive into Kharki and drive into Kiev as they originally, I think think—you know, they're they planning on this sort of surprise movement, um, or they're gonna, I mean, we, we knew what, was, what it was gonna look like, or they're gonna hit the outskirts. And one of the, the I mean, the, one of the things that we were aware of was uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, NATO strategy in West Germany in the event of a Soviet attack was to retreat to the cities. Mm-hmm. And you have these, you know, what we call conurbations, which are these giant spread out urban areas. And the thing about urban areas is they make uh, motorized vehicles and mechanized vehicles like tanks, number of personnel carriers, very vulnerable because you can't see in a tank at all. It's really hard. You can only function if you've got infantry there uh, looking around for you. And if you've got artillery that's suppressing locations that might uh, try to shoot stuff at you. So we knew that NATO was going to retreat into these towns and then shoot out of them. Um, in fact, in, in West Berlin, which is you know West Berlin during the Cold War was stuck, stuck deep inside uh, uh, East Germany. And so this place was going to be finished. Uh, probably is going to be overrun in about a week. But the Americans had a huge concentration of artillery there, when I mean huge, I mean a uh, 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 brigade equivalent, and its job was to shell the Soviet uh, railroads that were going from Poland uh, to the West German border. And so the Soviets had an entire army, the 20th Guards Army, um, which whose task was to take the city and to stop this artillery. So we were not completely surprised, um, but I have to say uh, it's unprecedented that you can create human identity uh, that quickly. You know, 2014, the Ukrainians had no will, no organization, politically divided um they were still corrupt from 2014 uh to 2022 there's i mean just massive levels of corruption but the soldiers on the ground including russian ukrainians had made a choice and it it meant um on the ground it meant power levels were gone um normally you have you have some cultures where you've got someone in charge and people uh, you know uh, listen to that person so in places like france the the power distance is much stronger than say in Sweden Uh, that's and so Sweden generally they fight better because they pass information more efficiently this type of data comes from a guy called Geert Hofstedt. it's it's all business type data you know if you're running a company you want to you know learn how to get your company your IBM company in different countries to to work with other IBM companies so this guy he made he did a whole bunch of statistical measures of people's national character Um, so the Ukrainians flattened their their power differential uh which they would have inherited from soviet times um so you know in in, this, in in russia today you still have essentially the soviet mentality which is people the citizens on the ground don't get involved in politics they defer to the higher authority they're afraid um and in fact uh russian citizens are not allowed to listen in on the debates in the parliament or the Duma in Moscow and that was a recent law uh it, i mean so Putin was removing governance from the people um, and it's a fa- it, in Russia, it's a fatalistic attitude. Uh, it has to do with their long history of insecurity. And so they buy security um, by deferring to authority. In Ukraine, that changed. Um, uh, the other big thing was trust. Um, you know, one of the ways the Soviet Union did not work was no one trusted anybody. And, and that's how the, 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 the communist regime functioned. It it atomized people. Uh, it, it either broke up groups that could organize against them, so people felt alone and alienated. Or it grouped them together so that it could threaten family members. So sort of a two-prong, you know, we, we get it when you're divided and we get you when you're together. Right. Ukraine, it solved that problem. So um, uh, lower power level, a high level of trust, boom, uh, revolutionary change. So you're, you're looking at, a—you a, a, you know, a 100, 200, 300% increase in, in efficiency. Uh, it meant that people were talking and sharing information. Even even if they didn't have the rank to, to do it, they would bypass their officer and do it anyway. Right. Um, so, you know, I totally did not, I've I, never seen this speed of acculturation. Um, you have, you know, you have, you have Mussolini. Mussolini tried to do this because in World War I, the Italians lost almost a million dead. It fragmented the, 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 the society. And so Mussolini wanted a better way have a war which wasn't um so traumatic so that you could have an italian identity that could be created to create trust the israelis did the same right at the independence of israel they're getting boatloads of people from europe and then right away sticking them into military units giving them a rifle sending them to the front thinking this would somehow create an identity Um, it doesn't always work and um so i think this is the big change that we, we we thought this could happen um but we didn't think it was likely um and when I mean we, there was, you know, eight, eight of us uh, in, a, in a seminar room at Concordia with a giant map and a bunch of pieces that we would sort of uh, put together a week before, going off of orbats on Wikipedia and, and where we thought the Russians were. Um, and so that was, I mean, for us, that's the big change, is Ukrainians change their culture in less than a decade.
0: How frustrating is this situation uh, for Putin uh, and obviously his high-ranking generals, uh, they probably clearly didn't see this or they hadn't evaluated it. I mean, they walk into this territory, think one, at least uh, obviously up high, they, they they didn't believe this. But down low where they're passing this message, uh, we're going in as liberators. And up high, they're thinking we're going to destroy these people in a matter of days, if you not know, a week or two. And we're a month later and they have you know thousands upon thousands of casualties. Uh, their plans obviously aren't going as planned. How frustrated is he? I mean, w- w- how do you feel that the situation must be there?
1: Yeah, so uh, my understanding of how Russia works is that you've got Sylviki, and these are different factions of intelligence strongmen related to the FSB. And so these guys have regional control of Russia. This was the case during the Soviet Union also. When Nikita Khrushchev, the premier of the USSR, I know I, he, he lost status because of his defeat during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev moved against him. And so Leonid Brezhnev had the KGB guy uh, from Moscow. Nikita Kuchov had the KGB guy from Armenia, who's less powerful. They land, he landed at the wrong airport and got picked up right away and arrested and then sidelined. Uh, so you you have it's it's a mafia type of system. Uh, and, and I hate to use this, this example, uh, but you know, one of the indicators is, you know, do the KG, do the local FFB people pay for prostitutes or do they just force them? sells on the prostitutes, right? So uh, they obviously don't pay for it. So um, you have that level of criminality uh, and and it's associated with a racketeering operation. You've got 500 companies uh, that constitute 80% of Russia's GDP. That's an enormous concentration of companies. uh, And that means it's easy to do racketeering where you you extort money. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about the oligarchs. The oligarchs are technically important. They know how to do their job, but they're politically powerless. Uh, they were powerful in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin. It was the Wild West. They, you know, they bribed people left and right, but that would you know, they were very quickly contained in 1999 by Putin. So they're not the issue. It's really the Sloviki. So we've got this architecture and most of the people around uh, Putin are his Leningrad buddies. I mean, there's like, there's like four or five of them. Uh, including the foreign intelligence person, um, the overall head of the FSB. Uh, uh, There's there's an ideologue that is the former head of the FSB. Uh, Now, they control four political parties in uh, the Duma. Uh, There isn't a single opposition seat in the Duma. It's incredible. All four parties are on the payroll. Um, The the only party that um, has members that occasionally don't follow the party line is the Communist Party. Because they have strong labor union connections and they're not happy, obviously, with the oligarchs. So this is the only party that stood up to Putin, and Putin can't really do anything about it, because uh, the same the same uh, older generation that support the Communist Party also support the ideology that he's pursuing. So he's occasionally embarrassed by them, and and um, uh, you know it's it's sort of ironic that they're representing a democracy. So Putin's frustration, uh, I think, I mean. Uh, uh, You know, I, I I don't think he can blame the people around him. I think he knows it was his failure because he embedded himself in this FSB culture. The army is in a sense, he's got his 400,000, uh, 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 gendarmerie, his personal, uh, bodyguard, which is, you know, sort of a paramilitary, uh, organization, which, you know, countries do that all the time when they're afraid of the military, um, in Pakistan, uh, Liaquat uh, Ali Khan, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, 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 not, not Ali Khan, but um, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto tried to um, uh, create and the army held a coup against him. In Chile, they tried, uh, Allende tried to create one and it right away led to Pinochet holding a coup. So uh, he created this gendarmerie and amazingly, the army didn't stop him because they know it's designed to uh, stop the army. Uh, you know we think of an army as very powerful it's got tanks airplanes and helicopters you can go bomb the capital but generals have families and those are targeted by the intelligence services and are made vulnerable by this by this gendarmerie so um you've got the uh, the uh, defense minister who has no experience no military experience whatsoever uh and then you've got his subordinate who is a, a senior general and um and uh, from them, uh, you have the same racketeering network, the same extortion that goes on uh, between the Siloviki, the, the FSB uh, strongmen of the different regions of the companies. You have them doing it to the logistical system in the military. So we have a military uh, that is competent on the battalion and brigade level, but they're starved for money to train. Uh, they're not allowed to plan. Uh, and their logistic system has been gutted out. And so, uh, I mean, this disaster in in Ukraine for the Russian army, and the Russian army is furious. I think that's what Putin's afraid of. Um, The Russian army is not traditionally the guardian of the people. But in 1993, uh, there was a a pilot who shot down in Afghanistan who didn't like what the Soviet Union was doing. And when Russia fell, he led a political party movement in the legislature. And Boris Yeltsin, to remain in power, called upon the army and the army drove tanks up to the legislature and shelled it in, uh, in Moscow. And uh, that was, that was uh, Alexander Rutskoy, um, uh, who's still alive. Um, you know, so he was, he was basically, his, his attempted uh, overthrow of the Boris regime failed. It's very likely that's what Putin's afraid of, that the army would intervene. Um, you know, I, I often think what what do you know what do dictators think when they neutralize the army's ability to function, and then they pay a heavy price. And so, you know, you think of the Ayatollah, for example. He he wiped out the Iranian army, and then Saddam Hussein invaded, and Iran paid a very high price. But their thinking was um, uh, more dangerous than Saddam Hussein's army were the weapons Saddam Hussein was providing minorities in Iran. Even though you know Saddam Hussein had this giant army. The, the ayatollahs in Iran thought they made the right decision. Saddam Hussein, same thing. I mean, um, his main threat was this recurring cycle of military coup d'etats that were in Iraq, always over, you know, causing disruption. And so uh, he neutralized it by by taking the Republican Guard, general command, and putting them behind the army to control them. And then he he eventually realized this war was. Too expensive against Iran, he allowed the army and the Republican Guard to train as they should. They defeated Iran, ended the war, and then he he fired all those people. Uh, and again, Saddam Hussein thought he was doing the right thing, because if you look at uh, um, if you look at Iraq in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was just a series of coup d'états that was very destabilizing. So Putin, I think in his calculus, he's trying to save Russia, right? Um, He's fighting, uh, in my view, a cultural war. Um, uh, He's got uh, a society that um, has a a, a rapidly uh, dropping birth rate. Um, uh, It's being bombarded by uh, messages of, of liberalism from the rest of Europe. And he thinks this is gonna lead to the next breakup of Russia. You've got Ingushetia, Dagestan and Chechnya, which are basically ruled from Chechnya by a strong man with a, a, a brigade of soldiers and the FSB who to drag away uh, young Muslim men at night. Um, you have uh, Russia's Far East, which is depopulating. And, uh, you know, China's made it clear recently that, you know. The Amur region was taken illegally. That includes the cities of Vladivostok and Kabarovsk was taken illegally from Russia in 1860. So uh, Russia's got a territorial threat in the Far East. And with climate change, global warming, China has a big interest in going into Siberia and in the Far East. It's got a ton of oil, a ton of coal, lots of minerals. Um, uh, uh, as the taiga, the small pine trees move north, you got arable land. I mean, China's got half as much arable land as India. Um, uh, so I mean, they're suffering and climate change is going to hit China worse than anybody. Climate change is going to take out the rivers uh, in the Himalayas so Russia's got to make itself stronger uh, Putin's solution was just to nuclearized defense they've, they've normalized the use of tactical nuclear weapons because it's the only way they could survive against China um, You know, China's got a higher per capita income in nominal GDP which is crazy. It means uh, Russia's completely neglected uh, their economy. Their their economy now is, is, is in nominal GDP less than South Korea, just ahead of Brazil. And Indonesia manufactures more goods that, that are non-military goods. Right. I mean, uh, I mean uh, uh, there are so many intelligent people in Russia. Moscow is top ten for uh, pure mathematics people who who want to do their their math specialization they go to princeton they go to Aachen, germany then they go to the university of moscow but you can't start a startup in russia without it getting subjected to racketeering. so um there's zero innovation in russia that's not military and and we can see uh while there is innovation militarily they just can't mass produce Mm -hmm. uh at least not mass producing quality so uh i think i think um, Putin's scared of the army. I, I think he recognizes he made a terrible mistake. Um, but I, I think he, he's fighting. I, I, mean, I think he's sincere. I don't think uh, he's doing this to distract the Russian population. I think he actually thinks that he's helping Russia by keeping it from falling apart. Because if Russia becomes a liberal democracy, the principle of self-determination is going to sweep away about 10% of the population. Um, and, uh, this is in a country, um, uh, where you, 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 I mean, there's no other formula to govern Chechnya except the violence. And right. once you have a liberal system in Russia, those places become independent overnight. Right. And I mean, the whole reason Russia controls Chechnya is because it's, uh, Russia lacks geographic frontiers and Chechnya is right there in the mountains. It's the last piece of real estate. I mean, Grozny is right North of the mountains. And so by controlling Chechnya, the, the Russians control the flatland and the mountains. And that, that's a you know a, a block in, in the Caucasus. So um, we're dealing with someone who is, he's, he's a um, he's not uh he, he's, he's not an imposter. He actually uh I mean, does him I think he does embody Russian nationalism. Um but he's the the big mistake he's making and uh Xi Jinping are making. Is they're fighting history because this liberal impulse isn't coming from outside China and Russia; it's coming from the young people inside Russia.
0: Right.
1: And right. there's just no formula for that. I mean, there's you can't. We, we see that in Canada.
0: Can't avoid it. Uh, uh, we're going to get to to the neighboring countries that are you know playing their own game uh, in in just a second. But uh, let me let me just get on the ground. Uh, in Ukraine, I was listening to um, a former CBC, a uh, foreign uh, correspondent, uh, Brian Stewart. He was on a, he was on some podcast. a Very well experienced man. He's seen conflicts all over the world, and he was saying that you know in and around uh, Ukraine there's about two hundred thousand Russian shol- uh, soldiers, and you know we we have to understand that Ukraine is this enormous country with f- you know over forty four million people, of which eleven million of are military age, and of those eleven million. Of military age, you have six million that are really fit uh, for military service, and within those six million that are fit for military service, you have about half a million that are currently serving or they're, you know, uh, uh, part of their reserves. And I'm listening to this, and I'm wondering how is it then that they have allowed the Russian forces to 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 do this so much damage in, in in a month? How come? There, i mean we're definitely seeing a resistance it's clear we just spoke about the reasons for it but given what you just said plus you know these numbers and maybe you can validate them you're probably more knowledgeable on that but i'll take his word for it um how have we not seen russia suffer even worse or you know uh, how did we not see ukraine end this conflict uh already
1: yeah, so it really is a, a, a yeah. Brian Stewart is completely correct in his numbers. Uh, you have light infantry uh, equipped with anti-tank and local anti-air systems, with a limited numbers of tanks and some artillery, uh, basically uh, secured in urban areas. And the urban areas are very difficult for the Russians to get into because they don't have enough forces to provide the support to get in. So. If this was a Soviet invasion, we would have had a nerve gas attack on all the air bases, which is not fatal. Um, You know, it it kills maybe 5% and the the other 95% have double vision or they have severe nervous problems. You can't fly a helicopter if you have severe double vision. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you would have uh, armored columns of tanks moving very quickly, 50 kilometers a day, uh, occasionally with spurts of 30 kilometers an hour. And they're supported by uh, armored vehicles with infantry inside and when they come to a village they're going to fire artillery very quickly to suppress it with smoke and then get around it and they'll have combat helicopters floating around in the back to uh counterattack uh, any any enemy tanks that would be attacking and if they find resistance um they'll move around it if they come across a minefield they've got they, they during the cold war the soviets had the biggest um engineering organization in the world i mean and and these guys move fast they could get um, hundreds of tanks across the river in an hour. I mean, they, they have these ferries that, that open up like accordions that deploy in five minutes and they could drop 20 of these and then connect them together in 15 minutes. and You've got a bridge that'll hold a 70 ton tank. Um, and uh, uh, when the Russians stopped training, they lost that. Now you have a Ukrainian soldier stands up behind the bushes, fires an anti-tank weapon, and it hits a tank. Against the Soviets, they never would have been able to stand up the infantry the russian infantry would have been there the russian tank would have been out a thousand yards very far away um beyond beyond uh the effective range of a javelin because once you fire a javelin uh that tank um uh, has a few moments to turn its turret and fire in that direction at the uh the target you know you can um uh, uh, fire uh, pellets or flechettes or whatever or you suppress the guy that's firing the rocket now i know the javelin's fired forget so they, they probably could have fired some sort of shotgun device. So it's very difficult to fire a missile at a tank. Um, the same thing happened that we have today uh, occurred in the Arab-Israeli War in 1973. The Egyptians uh, and the Israelis got into war. Uh, the Egyptians crossed the Suez Canal. The Israelis did a counterattack uh, and they lost 15 to 20% of their tanks in seven days. The Israelis basically are a conscript army. They've got a you know a very, very tiny military force, about 25,000 at the time. Uh, and uh, more than 90% of their army were conscripts. And so they sent these tanks with conscript infantry and the infantry who are conscripts, you know, they're bakers and elevator repair people. They don't know how to do this. So they hide. So the tanks went out in front and the Egyptians just stood up with rockets and blasted them and the tanks couldn't see. So what we have with the Russians is a ridiculously large number of vehicles that are not cooperating. So we have tanks, we have armored personnel carriers. The infantry don't get out of these things. We have artillery that doesn't do suppression, uh, which means a suppression uh, in World War I. At the beginning, people would have these two week long bombardments where they'd fire two million shells. And, you know, the German and the French and English solution solution was just to dig deep or, or to you know, leave light defenses and, and retreat people. And when the shelling ended, you sort of run up quickly and man the machine gun. Um, at the end of World War I, they realized all you need is 15 minutes. You don't need two weeks. It's nuts. You fire, you fire fifteen minutes of barrage, uh, throw in some gas. Uh, your guy, and it's a big surprise. You don't need to have a huge buildup of ammunition. Your guys run across, and then they immediately assault the trench. You know, supported by airplanes and tanks, whatever. Uh, so it's like sort of combined arms um to do combined arms is really you know really difficult you got to get the the infantry guy to talk to the tank guy talk to the artillery guy talk to the helicopter guy talk to the air support talk to the electronic warfare guy talk to the logistics guy because these guys have to bring supplies up and meet you at a certain location and most guys do logistics so a lot of guys driving around in trucks making sure the right bullets go to the right vehicle um russia was going for a uh, you know, just an intimidation thing. They they pile these guys up because of the corruption in the army. They never uh, train, so you've got this column of vulnerable vehicles, tanks with no support. They're they're just it's just they're picking them off.
0: I mean, it's so, quite it's quite astonishing because when you know before this conflict, which is like in you know in everyone's TV, right? Everyone is looking at this, witnessing this quote unquote weakness of an army that everyone thought was the most powerful one, right? Everybody was afraid of Russia. And even even until now, I mean, uh, and maybe it still is. We don't know. Maybe there's, you know, uh, the, the, the there's an army uh, force that's still not there or who knows? Maybe they're keeping it as a phase two. I don't know what, what the thing is. But everyone, including myself, thought <laughs> Ukraine versus Russia, it's over. Ukraine, forget it. You know, do your prayers and that's it, you know? And it's a complete shocker. And I want to get back to what you're talking about, warfare in the city, because I remember you teaching us about urban warfare and how incredibly difficult and challenging it can be. How relevant is that in this conflict? And, you know, what outcome do you think um, is to be expected?
1: Yeah, uh, well, urban warfare is difficult because it interferes with the electromagnetic spectrum. So sensors don't work and you have natural armor from cement and in any country where it's cold you have found deep foundations for buildings and so it's just it's it's heck it's hell um it doesn't mean you can't do it the americans at seluja uh, uh took uh, you know they took a lot of time um and so they went from house to house they would cross uh streets um with a lot of smoke and only after they completely suppressed all the other buildings and they could only do that because they outnumbered their enemy. They had a, a ton of firepower. They had a ton of time. And they were very well trained to be very slow and systematic. So the Americans didn't suffer a lot of casualties uh, compared to their enemy. who's you know, I think they suffered like more than 10 to 1 uh, ratio of losses. Uh, for the Russians, um, clearly they're outnumbered. So that's not going to work. Especially if uh, the young men and women in the cities, the, the, the militia equivalent in Ukraine, if they fight, um, then the Russians are going to have a problem. One of the consequences of an urban environment is that the skill level to defend um, increases your uh, performance opposite a very well-trained soldier. And so we saw this in Stalingrad. Germans on the open field were very efficient, coordinated better, were much faster, knew how to do combined arms warfare. Russians not. But once they, uh, uh, the Russians retreated into the city, that German advantage disappeared. It's hard to coordinate when you're just looking at a block of cement. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the Germans didn't have the same options as the Americans had in Fluxia in Iraq because they didn't outnumber the Russians. Um, they had less tanks, less soldiers, less artillery, uh, and they had good junior level leaders. But. And over time, you no longer have this huge ratio advantage. Uh, and I think the loss ratio in Stalingrad was like one to two, which is pretty severe. Every one dead Russian is uh, one dead German, two dead Russians, which you know, at that point the Russians are going to win. And that's ultimately um, uh, ultimately what happened. Uh, however, the reason I wouldn't write off the Russians is because of their performance in the 1939 1940 Finnish War. So they invaded Finland in 1939. And in the first uh 40 40 50 days they suffered 300 000 dead uh, an order of magnitude more than they're suffering now 20 times as many dead as they're suffering now the, the finns their population was like three million the population the entire population of kiev that just that and they're able to get behind the russians in these very long forested roads that look just like forested roads in northern quebec uh and cut them off and destroy them piecemeal and then the rest of them just froze to death uh, or, or, or were, were, were killed in large numbers. So uh, the one thing the Russians have is a consensus on security uh, where the society in general supports the idea that defense is important. Uh, and that that's very important um, because many people don't believe that. Um, uh, the Americans in Vietnam, for example, they, the Americans fought reasonably well, but um, th- there were a serious problems having to do with the uh, American population and the American soldiers in Vietnam weren't clear why they were there. And so there's a serious motivation issue that that undermined efficiency. People are not putting in their all. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Russians reinvented themselves in the Finnish war. Uh, they, they stopped fighting for a month. They fired all the senior officers that were uh, nincompoops, basically, uh, because they had political purges. And so a lot of the um, efficient generals were taken out. So they had to locate new efficient generals, basically bring people up from the brigades and the battalions. Uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, head of the Soviet Union, obviously, um, uh, created a political space where the military could operate professionally. They trained. They rehearsed, they did an analysis of the fortifications, the Manor line that the Finns had built very, very scientifically. And then they landed on top of the Finns like a ton of bricks. So um, the, the danger is the Russians can turn around very quickly. Uh, uh, clearly, the army, more than anyone, has been humiliated. Yeah. And uh, uh, like, I mean, one, one of the reasons Saddam Hussein in 1986. Uh, and 87 reformed the Iraqi military is that we know that he was facing um, threats from the army, the Iraqi army, which said, you know, we've been fighting for half a decade. We've been dying. Uh, you are incompetent. If you don't change something, we are. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, you know, he, he pre- preempted a coup. So um, Putin might do the same thing. Um, the, the question then, and I, I don't think sanctions are a factor. I think the losses of the Russian soldiers are a factor. Russian people don't mind sacrificing their, their uh uh, you know immediate quality of life for security because they i mean they've had a very very long difficult history um and so they will defer to authority if the authority is providing security guarantees so i think that's uh, a danger um i had a a dispute with a couple of uh, students and we were sort of bean counting every single unit and which units were destroyed because there are ways of identifying which units were destroyed Um, And the dispute centers on the VDV, which is the descent forces, basically uh, airborne units. And the the, the Russians have about seven or eight brigades, each brigade like three to five thousand soldiers of airborne troops. And um, these troops are the elite of the Russian military. Uh, And uh, they're precisely the kind of high quality infantry that you would need uh, to be able to provide support to tanks. But um, they are about 50 percent conscripts. And so uh, we were speculating um, that if there is uh, a a rebuilding of the Russian army within 30 days, it would be around those guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 73, after the Israelis lost a lot of their tanks running into Egyptian um, uh, rocket infantry, they took uh, their airborne guys, this tiny, tiny unit, and they took a couple of special forces guys. They matched them up with a tiny force of regular tanks and they, they had this combined force drive deep behind the Egyptians, get to the canal and start building engineering equipment across it. And the rest of the Israeli army, which is conscripts, basically followed in behind. So uh, um, we could be seeing uh, the Russians sharpening the tip of the spear. I But all of this depends on whether there's political time in Russia to do right. that. So um, as powerful as uh, Ukraine's resistance is, Uh, 200,000 Russians in a combined arms force retrained with competent brigade and battalion commanders uh, without political direction from an FSB Soloviki game plan, Um, uh, even in an urban environment like Kiev, they'll easily overcome the light Ukrainian infantry.
0: So what what does this mean for the EU and for NATO? Uh, How does this conflict affect or will affect or has affected already, you know, the regional balance of power?
1: Yeah. It, it, you know, it was, there was a danger that uh, NATO is going to spin apart. And I think that the danger is still there. Um, so, uh, you know, right off the bat, you have Bulgaria, Greece, and Hungary who are not cooperative, right? Greece and Bulgaria see Turkey as the threat, not Russia, right? Because of the traditional, um, you know, Rome sees itself as, as rather, Moscow sees itself as the third Rome. Uh, Hungary depends on energy and there are, uh, uh, some political groups in Poland, like Hungary, where the, the they're not particularly afraid of a Russian invasion, they're far more interested in immigration issues. Mm-hmm. So Poland has an issue because of Kaliningrad, which is which is the you know the ex East East Germany, uh, ex uh, um, East Prussia, which is between them and Lithuania. So they're they're more alert to the issue. Um, Hungary is not, I mean, Hungary, uh, depends on Russian gas and, you know, we, we should qualify that despite this whole war going on, the gas is still flowing to Germany and Italy. I mean, this is the most cynical thing I've ever seen. Um, in an article I wrote, you know, several months before the war, I mean, I basically characterized it as, uh, um, a a war that's going to happen because Germany gave permission. The Germans have been blocking supplies from NATO to Ukraine for half a decade because they've been receiving uh, energy and natural gas from Russia since the mid-1980s before the end of the Cold War, and the Russians have never once done an interruption even now. Mm -hmm. So it's a deal between the richest European country and the militarily most powerful European country. Um, uh, France and England, I mean, uh, these are expeditionary sort of countries with with overseas trade interests uh the, the their militaries are tiny uh, uh England's entire military is 150,000 basically two and a half times Canada's they're minuscule France is a little bit bigger the british uh, uh navy is not deployed in europe i mean it's deployed in asia because the the british depend on america to counterbalance european influence and so they they basically just match themselves to American grand strategy the British have no independent nuclear deterrent the missiles with the warheads that are in the British ballistic missile submarines are owned by a joint share company uh, that's how where the shares are owned by the U.S. And, and British governments and the missiles are reprocessed in a factory in the U.S. so very often Brit- British submarines will go to the U.S. and unload the missiles there right so France does have an independent um, uh, uh, nuclear deterrent, but they're, you know, they're minuscule and their focus is on Africa, where Russia, frankly, doesn't have a significant material investment. So, and the French and English are, you know, they're focused on, on energy imports and food imports and things to make their economy work. So Germany and Italy are the core here. And you know what, I, I, I have not spent the time to figure out what's going on in Italy, but I did look at Germany and my, my inclination was to blame Angela Merkel as a cynical East German you know, communist, probably sympathetic to, to the Soviet Union. But I discovered, no, she actually raised the issue years ago and said, listen, we have a problem. We get our gas from Russia. They're eventually going to do something to Ukraine. We have to take a position. We're vulnerable. And it was her coalition partners in, in the Bundestag that said, no, um, you want to keep us? You don't shake that tree. So. Uh, it's I mean it's local politics in Germany that's frozen the government's ability to be able to adapt to this. Uh, Italy is just following Germany. They have a high level of dependence. Libya is a mess. Uh, you know Berlusconi used to recycle Gaddafi's money uh, to you know invest in things like Fiat and then used to, he illegally used the money to for his campaign financing. Libya is no longer a reliable source, so you know he needs he needs gas from uh, Russia. You've got the Baltic states: Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Obviously. Um, yeah, uh, Lithuania is very, very big uh, in terms of real estate, uh, but the population is tiny. I mean, Estonia, they're tiny populations, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. So Estonia's got uh, two battalions of soldiers. That's about 1,000 soldiers for each battalion. Uh, Lithuania's got a brigade of around 5,000 soldiers. I mean, so these guys are super weak. That's where NATO's putting all their investment Yeah. Um, Belarus is not a problem. I mean, Belarus has got about 9 million people and they have only 10,000 soldiers. They've got, they've got 50,000 gendarmerie that they basically use to suppress the population. And and the Belarusian population is on the verge of a revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, Putin wants, uh, uh, Lukashenko to deploy his 10,000 soldiers in Ukraine. That would be not wise because he's likely to suffer a coup. So obviously he doesn't want to commit his soldiers there. Um, so uh, Poland is not particularly concerned because uh, Russia's in Ukraine. The Russians that are in Belarus are stuck around Kiev, and Belarus has, poses zero threat um, uh, to Poland. Um, one of the wild cards was, for me, Romania. Um, Slovakia is, is to the north of Hungary, and they were one of the first non-Baltic states uh, to call for a no-fly zone, which I personally think is a very good idea um now romania uh is actually fairly weak they have two divisions of soldiers which is about 15,000 each of which one couldn't deploy outside the country and i originally speculated in an article that they could intervene to help ukraine uh to defend uh, odessa which i thought but right you know the the romanian ambassador wrote an article identifying me as being wrong uh obviously the government was very risk averse um and one of my, uh, former students, uh, who, who is Canadian air force described setting up because Canada has a mission in Romania where we deploy, uh, F-18s on patrol. And he described the horrible state of infrastructure there. The airfields are too few to host a, a large number of American or German, French, English airplanes. Um, the road structure does not exist. You can't drive through Romania into Ukraine. You have to go another way. So, uh, it's not a viable staging area. Uh, uh, Ukraine basically um, uh, you know it's got severe domestic issues with, with regard to corruption. They don't want to get involved in a war um, uh, with Russia in Ukraine. So and not not even sort of in a standoff uh, type of position. Now Turkey obviously um, uh, is helping Ukraine. and and those drones, those back our drones are using Canadian uh, optics. But uh, as you see with Syria and the Caucasus, uh, Turkey and Russia are divided. Uh, Turkey obviously wants to increase its influence. They back uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, as we speak, and, and for the last two weeks, the ceasefire over uh, Nagorno-Karabakh has fallen apart. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the Azeris are, are shelling. And um, the Russians aren't doing anything, uh, primarily because they feel betrayed by the Armenian leadership which has been heavily influenced by american armenians and armenian uh, american armenian money. And so uh you know he he picked he basically picked the wrong horse to back, alienating putin who then who then uh gave azerbaijan a lot of political space. So turkey is is uh it's a competitor with russia. It's I mean it's definitely not not um yeah. not yeah. A, not a friend.
0: Well, I mean, uh, I mean there are some important neighboring players that have been very Careful in navigating around the issue, right? I mean, um, they they haven't really taken a position, but they also haven't been critical towards uh, Russia. Um, um, like most, if not all, Western uh, countries have been. Uh, and specifically, I'm thinking about Turkey uh, and China, which you mentioned, which we can we can talk a little bit about. So, Turkey, for example, um, they 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 recently offered to step in as mediator between the two countries. Uh, many are thinking that it's just a ploy to get back into the F-35 program with the U.S., which was halted because they purchased S-400 missiles from uh, from Russia. So, we don't know exactly what's happening over there uh also we don't know if turkey can be trusted as a nato member uh country because of that uh, whole scenario uh china has openly stated that they can purchase russian uh, natural gas and oil uh, after all the sanctions and uh, also to provide military equipment what role are these countries playing i mean or what role do they wish to play where do they stand in this equation
1: Yes, I mean, Turkey's gone through a dramatic uh, change. Uh, It's essentially gone from a rural to an urban um, population. And normally that's a traumatic event. I mean, when it happened in the U.S., you had prohibition and gangsters. When it happened in in Iran, it ended up in a revolution. Uh, But from the heartland of Anatolia, um, uh, you've had a successful transition. And um, uh, this is actually, um, from the standpoint of the Turkish leadership, a big success. Uh, Now, it it has meant that you've had uh, an increase in political Islam and and a threat to the secularism of Turkey as a consequence because of the people that uh, were electorally uh, activated. Um, So that, uh, I mean, those politics and the the fact that uh, Turkey gravitated away from Israel um, that it gravitated uh, away from the Americans who are the traditional supporters of the secular Turkish military and, you know, Ataturk's vision uh, meant that the, the Americans were becoming very sensitive to the technology they were transferring to Turkey. I don't think the S-400 was the reason. I think it was um, the excuse. I, I, I think, frankly, the Americans preferred that Turkey buy the F 400 than buy an equivalent american system because they were not sure if turkey was going to share the technology or not with china mm-hmm. um but i mean tur- turkey is is uh it's not a sustainable foreign policy because it's very expensive because they're getting involved in a lot of countries and it's it's it means that the money they're not spending on education and healthcare are, are going to weapons yeah. and that is not going to last so this type of uh strongman uh leadership that erdogan has is 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 temporary it's not going to survive um the democratic process for long china is obviously terrified i spent most of my time writing about china not not what would happened with russia and ukraine and you know th- this this whole war destroyed their playbook uh their goal uh was to um Exploit an international event that would have given them cover, so they could go after Taiwan at some point in the future. And what Russia did was basically uh, activate the world. Uh, so if China goes after Taiwan, obviously uh, sanctions will be a lot easier to impose. Uh, America will will, do, will be doing the fighting against um, uh, against uh, China over Taiwan, but Europe is now going to uh, be the the economic base. And provide resources to the U.S. and uh, deal with Russia, which which I, I, I which I think they're going to be able to do uh, in short order once they move forces um, uh, to the frontier uh, of Poland. Uh, China um, sees that if it starts a war, I you know China is dependent on energy, and um, uh, it's it's debatable whether Russia can supply enough energy for its own needs and the needs of China. Uh, if China were to be blockaded. Um, you know, around around the Straits near Indonesia so that it couldn't get oil from the Middle East. Um, and China, of course, depends heavily on food. I mean, if there's, if there's a shortage in the world's food supply as there is now, and China suffers a famine, there's not enough food on the entire planet to make up the shortfall. China is, it's that precarious, uh, the agricultural system in China. I, when I was there, I was in a rural area outside a city and I got to drive around and see the kind of farming and China's farming is it, it's it's reasonably efficient, but it's less mechanized than uh, Western farming. People have tractors, but it, it's really they look like souped up John Deere's. It's like a John Deere with giant wheels. They don't have the massive combines that you associate with you know, most most um, uh, Western countries. So um, China is doing the bare minimum because they need uh, uh, to not have a complete rupture with Russia. But, I mean, essentially, Russia and China are geopolitical competitors. China wants the Far East. China needs the Far East. Um, uh, uh, the American diplomacy of the 1950s and 60s had no problem peeling communist China away from the Soviet Union. I mean, in 59, they split ideologically because China wanted to bomb uh, Taiwan. In 54 and 58, they tried to bomb Taiwan and Russia, Soviet Union said, we're not going to support you on it. So they split on how aggressive foreign policy would be. And then in 69, they had a border war. And then you know, by 1980, uh, a third of, of, of the Soviet Union's military was deployed opposite China. Now, the the, the the Russian military has pulled back 100 miles from the frontier as a part of an agreement. Um, but you know, in my view, um, a showdown between Russia and China is inevitable wow. and it's far more important than Taiwan.
0: For sure. Um, are you at all concerned about the sudden increase in defense spending from other uh, countries? I mean, we saw Germany right at the uh, at the beginning of this conflict announce unprecedented amounts. Uh, some Baltic countries have been beefing up their arsenal with the help of some other countries, including Canada. Uh, this week, during a NATO summit, the Secretary General was adamant about members. Uh, meeting the required two percent of the gdp spending on on defense budgets um this has become actually a present issue in the current leadership uh race at the conservative party of canada here uh where some candidates are suggesting that we need to be investing much more money in protecting our northern border um, to russia uh, what's your take on all of this
1: okay so i mean in general the 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 quantities are minuscule i mean if, if you look at if you compare the amount of money spent on health or education or infrastructure uh, or even research and development um Military spending is super low. Uh, okay. Since uh, 2000, uh, Europe has gotten rid of one third of their tanks. Uh, uh, B- Belgium and Holland no longer have any tanks at all. Uh, so you've had, a, uh, in, in fact, Belgium and Holland uh, created a joint navy so that they didn't have to have two navies. So you have a general drawdown in the West. The British have cut their feet in half. Since the end of the Cold War, they've got a nice, you know, uh, two shiny new aircraft carriers, but the escorts for it are not sufficient, they, mm-hmm. they would have to have uh, American logistical support American submarines, so um, NATO very rapidly uh, uh, de-equipped, and the the numbers are so low, there's almost no impact. Um, and a lot of the technology that they would be buying, communications equipment, is, is going to be uh, dual use. And a lot, a lot of the success Ukrainians have is good intelligence, which allows them to pinpoint strike the uh, targets in uh, uh, Russian targets in Ukraine. So um, you're not going to see a macroeconomic consequence in terms of a, a opportunity cost for a major other program. Obviously, you um, Uh, Where the pain comes from is that you're going to have governments having to have uh, long term programs that have to be consistent. So in Canada, you know, for shipbuilding, aircraft production, uh, you you, you have to commit to a policy. Canada has spent 600 million dollars. Uh, on the F-35 program, and we don't have a single airplane yet. So uh, the Canadian government is just paying penalties to avoid having to buy an aircraft. It's really, (laughs) it's just, you know, incredible. Um, I'm generally not a fan of Arctic security, because I find that it is a distraction. The Conservatives generally use it uh, as an easily identifiable uh, object that we can spend money on. Uh, The Liberals when they're when they're pressured to spend on something like with the you know the alcos affair where the americans and the australians got together in a submarine program and canada did not want to look like a bad ally suddenly the liberals are talking about spending up in the north so it's really both parties that use it as, as a place to put money um it's it's only use really is to block uh russian natural gas which goes 90 percent by tanker not pipeline to asia so you could block it there but i'm not sure what we would add that the u.s navy would not um so, our main priority in the Arctic, of course, is to uh, defend the International uh, uh, Northwest Passage, which, under international law, does not belong to us. Although our government's position is that it's ours, but I, you know, if you look at uh, UNCLOS three, nine nation law, the seat number three, it's clearly not belonging to Canada. Yeah. Um, but the, you don't, that you don't—that doesn't get much, you know, doesn't get much press, and no one's going to support us. And the more pro- provocative we are. Uh, you know the the French or the Americans are going to put a coast guard vessel through there and just park it in the middle of it and dare us to move it. So um, it's best that we don't do anything. Um, obviously, I think Canada should take a much more aggressive position. And um, most of what I've written about is the lead up to the first and second world wars. I mean, Canada sent two battalions of infantry to Hong Kong. Mackenzie um, King did, the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, a few months before, and they were all quickly defeated. By the Japanese, we didn't send enough. Um, the British were swept out of Singapore. Uh, the Americans and the Philippines were swept out by the Japanese in 1941 and 42. Uh, what we should do uh, to avoid war is to make an estimate of how aggressive China is going to be, and then to participate with the U.S. But Canada's political culture is 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 just you know v- very anti-security, and, and this is not. Uh, that certainly. Certainly you have a minority of the population, a the minority of electorate in Canada that support um, uh, the Canadian government having a larger military, um, but there wasn't much of a backlash when um, the military was cut. So uh, we, we actually did more than our fair share um, in the decade after World War II. Uh, and then we started to decline. Um, Diefenbaker's government, conservative government fell over a vote uh, when the U.S. was essentially giving us, I mean, not even dual, dual control, but giving Canada its own nuclear arsenal to shoot down incoming Soviet bombers. And these are not missiles that could reach the Soviet Union, but they're local theater weapons to shoot down bombers, air-to-air missiles, the Falcon and the Genie. Um, and, you know, we could have gotten other types of equipment like nuclear depth charges to chase submarines. Uh, the, the the majority of those in the uh, parliament and a large part of his cabinet said no, we don't want nuclear weapons. So the liberals came in, and then Lester B. Pearson, uh, in, to, to mollify the Americans, secretly accepted nuclear weapons. And so we had nuclear weapons. We had uh, the Beaumont warheads and um, Genie air-to-air missiles. And then Brian Mulroney came in and said, get rid of these things in 1987. And so we, we sent them back to the U.S. But essentially, Canada didn't. Um, we had no official nuclear weapons policy. Because we didn't want anyone to know, you know, least of all our own electorate. So uh, I, I don't I mean, I don't I don't see a, a, a broadly there's not going to be a big consequence raising the defense spending to 2%. It's a minuscule amount. Now, I, I, I should qualify it. Any money spent on weapons is a waste of money. It's always a waste of money. um and this whole myth that World War II somehow galvanized the world scientific community, and then we, we had a great life in the 1950s because we had television because of it, it's totally flawed. If you look at the number of Americans that were unemployed during the Depression, when World War II broke out, the exact same number of people were in uniform fighting so, you know, ask yourself, what would you prefer to be, uh, on, on an unemployment line or charging a beach, beach with a rifle, right? So it, it it basically took the underclass and put them in uniform. Um, uh, televisions uh, were, were going to be available five to 10 years earlier if World War II hadn't happened, right? Um, uh, now, there are some benefits. Uh, radar, uh, billions. Of, it was the biggest program. More money was spent on radar than nuclear weapons and missiles. Uh, and there's some benefit. But they were going to spend that money anyway. And the types of radars they were designing are useless for for civilian life. A proximity fuses for shells. You don't need that kind of uh, equipment in the civilian world. So, two uh, percent is is very cheap. Um, if a country fights a war and it wins, it loses about five years of its economic life, which it then pays off over the next hundred years. Uh, and the British, I mean, the British recently paid off some wars in the nineteenth century in the nineteen nineties. So. You know, looking at 150 year mortgage on, on, on money you borrow for a war. If you lose a war, um, you can lose up to 25 years of your economy. And that's what happened to Germany at the end of World War II. Uh, but the Americans rebuilt it with the Marshall Plan and they stimulated it by creating a market. And if you lose a war and no one rebuilds you, you're like East Germany, which means uh, you lose forever. And East Germany didn't recover until it reunified with West West Germany and received a huge influx. So that 2% is minuscule in terms of the number of years lost uh, from a war breaking out, which you do not want to happen. Now, these these values are World War II values I'm giving you. If China goes after Taiwan, you're looking at the, the, and it turns into a general war, it's a five to seven year loss. If it goes nuclear, just locally, uh, it could be 25 years. Uh, plus Taiwan, plus the coast of China, plus other bases that that the U.S. has. And if it's strategic, I mean, I I don't think uh, China doesn't have enough nuclear weapons to inflict a civilizational collapse. But um, I mean, the lesson over Ukraine was that most of the key people knew it was going to happen. And uh, the Germans gambled that they could let it happen and it wouldn't escalate. Um, Largely because I thought, Uh, 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 Russia would just sweep in and that would be a fat complete and it'd be over. Um, But there are important lessons for China, uh, obviously, which is um, a a fight over Taiwan will be very different than a fight over Ukraine, because where the Russians can drive into Ukraine and get stuck, they can only back out. If China puts 100,000 Marines on a beach, uh, they're going to double down to make sure they don't lose. And while they don't have anywhere near the number of nuclear weapons that Russia does, what this crisis tells them is that they have to build a lot. Now, they, we, we, we are expecting them to have about 1,000 um, warheads, about half of which will be strategic by uh, 2030. So the Chinese are building three large ICBM fields um, uh, packed together. And that, that was an American concept from the 1980s, because if you have a warhead coming in, it detonates. Uh, because of the, the hardened cement, you're only going to blow up one or two missiles. And, the, and the, the, the warhead that you detonated that came in, it's going to blow up all the other warheads that are coming in after it. So right after that, you can then launch. So it's, it's a way of, of, you know, if you pack these things tightly together, it's a way of trying to save most of them. Um, but China's going to build tactical nuclear weapons, and they're probably going to use them. And um, that, you know, who knows how that, you know, where that will go. Um, and, you know, China's calculation is um, they're fighting against nature. Because over time, climate change is going gonna, is gonna to weaken them. And if, if they don't... Um, uh, capture Taiwan. They're never going to capture Taiwan, e- even if Taiwan is itself not that in, you know, I- of intrinsic value. Um, so, uh, I mean, th- that's the consequence of you know not spending you know slightly more than the two percent. I mean, yeah. my recommendation for for uh, for Ukraine would have been you know really deploy guys on the ground. There's this whole fear about this no-fly zone, which is it could somehow escalate. Um, my thinking is that Putin is crazy, and wants to launch nuclear weapons. He could have launched them yesterday. But he didn't, right? And the reason is he's not crazy. I mean, you and I live in a house in a suburb. Uh, we have a car. Um, this guy's got mansions and mansions and he's got connections and he's got children's, and he's got a girlfriend with three other kids in Switzerland. This guy's got a lot more to lose than us. Uh, he's not some sort of ascetic lunatic monk like Adolf Hitler who has some sort of uh, uh, sort of glorified vision of 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 you know what the world could be like. This guy, is, he's, a, he's an intelligence guy, a professional, and he's sitting on top of a giant mafia, right? And it's all about the money for these guys. And so um, uh, he's not crazy. Um, the problem with the no-fly zone is it's got that UN flavor to it, which is uh, uh, we're going to subject it to international law and it's going to be very restrained and that means rules of engagement and that means pilots can't do anything. Um, what I think we should do is, Take the local armies, those that want to cross over, put in some Germans, English and French and Americans, display the nuclear weapons at an air base. Let the Americans show off their theater nuclear weapons and go, listen, Putin, you can do this, but we will, within 900 seconds, give you a direct proportional response. So, you know, it's entirely, you know, in his court. And the Americans are, you know, and the English and the French, they're reasonably efficient at deploying nuclear weapons. They can happen very quickly. The danger of sitting there and going, you know what, nuclear weapons are immoral, they're unusable, we have to be afraid, anyone who recommends using them is crazy. Once you say nuclear weapons are not usable, Putin is just going to turn around and go, okay, uh, give me Poland, right? And there's nothing we can do. And that's exactly what Hitler did. I mean, that's how Hitler got Czechoslovakia from the uh, the English and the French.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If when The moment people say, I don't want to fight under any circumstances, all of their advantages disappear. They become completely weak, and they're open to exploitation. Um, I, I, the, the reason we talk about nuclear weapons, not being usable, uh, is because we don't want them to spread. Um, and we don't want them to spread because, you know, it's just ugly having nuclear weapons go off. They, they, uh, you know, it creates strontium 90, which, which mimics calcium. It goes into children's bones, uh, and, you know, inside bones is where blood is made. And so you, you increase the rate of cancer for people in their middle ages, um, uh, iodine uh, um, radioactive isotopes of iodine are created very easily, and they end up going to people's pituitary glands, and you get all sorts of horrible uh, growth consequences. So we don't want a world filled with floating radioactive material, and we've we've been pretty good uh, since since Hiroshima Nagasaki. Uh, the Americans tested 928 nuclear weapons in Nevada, of which 100 were above ground, and thank God that was in the 1950s. So that background radiation has been sort of leached out; it's no long, no longer with us. Um, so a tactical nuclear war in Ukraine is going to have that effect. And it's going to affect generations of children. That's what we're afraid of. It's not going to end civilization. There's not enough nuclear weapons today uh, to, you know, uh, uh, wipe out civilization. And, and even if there were, you know, I used to joke with my friends in Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh has a Nobel Prize winner in, in literature. Canada has. Um, uh, to my knowledge, does not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe someone should should check that. But, uh, you know, I asked my Bengali friend, if there was a large scale nuclear war, would you mind repopulating Canada? And they said, no problem. They have the people, they have the advanced uh, literary culture, uh, they would be more than happy to, you know, uh, help us out and, uh, you know, um, continue uh, the advance of human civilization. So um, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, Rabindranath Tagore is there. Is there um, a world famous um, uh, uh, Nobel Prize winning um, literary figure? So, um, for me, a, a no fly zone, uh, a rather, a, a soldiers on the ground with displayed nuclear weapons, and you don't have to be aggressive. You just cross over into the border. You don't approach the Russians. You don't even approach the Dnieper River. You stay like 200 kilometers away from these guys. But it makes the Russians aware that the nuclear weapons are there and sorry, the point I wanted to make earlier was um, the reason we didn't advertise this before is because nuclear weapons are not dangerous. They're actually super cheap and super efficient. The average warhead is about 2 million bucks. That'll take out a city or a large part of the city, the Americans Americans manufactured 70,000 warheads during the Cold War uh, up until 1994, uh, slightly after. And their peak production was one warhead every 50 minutes for three years between 1959 and 1961. So the American mission was to hide this. Because if everybody knew how cheap they were, how efficient they were, and how easy they were to make, everyone would be making them. And we would be living in heck. And uh, America's grand strategy is to spread democracy faster than the spread of nuclear weapons. So if Putin detonates a weapon, uh, you know, yeah, we're gonna have children who are gonna be relatively sick in, in, in older age, uh, um, uh, but that's about it. I mean, you can fire quite a few nuclear weapons in Ukraine and it's not gonna cause, uh, uh, you know, it's, the world's not gonna end. Um, uh, and they're gonna, people are gonna discover that they're very, very useful and a heck of a lot cheaper than the weapons that we have conventionally. A, a tank with a warhead is 20 times more efficient than a tank without a warhead. And yet we play this game with these conventional weapons like you know playing like puppet shows um when they're not really the weapons that matter. Right? I mean every naval weapon, every air weapon, every ground weapon has a nuclear equivalent. Uh, every you know torpedo uh, air-to-air missile, surface-to-air missile, uh, air-to-ground bomb, air-to-ground. We have, a, a, but we don't talk about it because we we don't want people to get the idea that we should start building them. So that's the the danger. If Putin detonates a weapon, it'll set a precedent, and people are going to start buying these things. And um, uh, China obviously is learning from this, right? They're looking at Taiwan, and you know China is guaranteed. The first thing they're going to do is declare we have nuclear weapons. We really care about this issue. So uh, don't go into our zone. And um, the the U.S. is unlikely to behave as as restrained as the Europeans are over Ukraine. All
0: right. Uh, I've kept you on for a long time. Uh, let's wrap it up. Um, what do you think the next step is? Uh, do you think Russia would, uh, uh, would ever back down from this or they've gone – uh, full force to like to to in to 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 realize or to let people know that they made a mistake to 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 withdraw. Um, is this more of a thing where they're in it for the long run? Uh, I mean, is, are negotiations even feasible at this point, or is it a waste of time?
1: Yeah, negotiations are always feasible. Every war ends. I mean, it's it's sort of a like crazy and there are books written about how wars end that you didn't think could end. Mm. Um, so it, it is going to end. Um, just because there aren't limitless supplies of bullets in Russia, uh, I think it's a, it's a big possibility that uh, Putin is going to be sidelined because of incredibly poor performance. Um, and I don't think it's bad. I, I, I think there's a young generation in Russia that is liberal uh, that are, that are going to repush the reforms of the late nineteen seventy, late nineteen nineties. Um, I think that's. I mean, that's that's what I'm. I you know my fingers are crossed for. I have written rather cynically that we want to keep this war going as long as possible uh, to increase the cost to Russia so that Putin gets toppled. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, you know, it's sad that the Ukrainians have to bear this burden. And I, you know, I think politically no one would ask them to do that. I I think if Russia uh, left Ukraine, uh, people would be, you know, left alone to do that. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I think if, if, if um, Russia reinvents itself and uh, goes for, Uh, Western Ukraine and this war drags on for a long time I think NATO has to drive into Ukraine and they have to do it boldly confidently with weapons on nuclear weapons on display um, to you know uh, 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 give a very clear um, communication deterrent communication to Putin but escalation dominance which is if he gets more violent we will get more violent Um, and and uh, only by threatening that are you going to get him to back down Um, but I mean I I am I am hoping that um, the, the negotiated solution is is him uh, pulling out in the way that Khrushchev pulled out from the Cuban Missile Crisis because um, you know the Americans just you know one one last point the Americans set up a a, a quarantine around Cuba and they told they told uh, Khrushchev you can't send missiles to there and uh, Khrushchev he blinked he said you know what you're strong I'm weak he turned his ships around but what Khrushchev could have done Uh, was saying, you know what, Um, I'm going to keep my ships going forward. And then you, America, you're the one who's going to start the nuclear war. You're the one who's going to start the fighting that's going to escalate. Right. Uh, There's a danger that Putin learns that lesson, the mistake that Nikita Kuchov made by turning around. Mm -hmm. And Putin says, you know what, no, I'm going to keep going. Uh, I'm going to make NATO make the first move. Right. Uh, and that's to be very difficult because NATO is uh, – there's so many players involved that um, they're not going to be able to act uh, decisively.
0: Well, yeah, because every NATO member has come out and said that they will not send boots into Ukraine. you think that would ever change?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think it could change. I, I think if the, the level of horror inflicted on the civilians in the Ukraine uh, continues and keeps continuing and it becomes – a a forever war lasting a year I, i think uh public sentiment will change dramatically
0: well we can definitely stay on and talk about this for forever especially with you julian um i appreciate your time i know that you're a very busy man uh i was glad to reconnect with you and uh hopefully uh we can get you back and uh talk some more at some other time i really really appreciate it thank you so much
1: thank you george